Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one orderly page of Talmud every day. In today's page, we find the rabbis in the mood to talk about this kind of most elusive, most difficult, and perhaps most important of concepts in the whole tractate, which is the concept of a public space. Just what does the notion of a public space mean? The rabbis in today's page say, well, it's probably a space in which about 60,000 people traverse every day, which strikes me as a kind of a very challenging concept uh, for urban developers and designers at any moment in time, but particularly now in the age of COVID, where traversing large public spaces with other people is challenging. So I have the pleasure today of welcoming to the show our most astute and brilliant writer and critic about all things architecture, urban planning, etc. writes for New York Magazine. Hello, Justin Davidson. Hi, how are you? I am very well. Thank you for being our guest. Now, help us out here. Here are the rabbis saying public space uh, is very important. And when they say public, they mean public. 60,000 people every day. What do you feel? What is public space to you? Well, public space is distinct from private property. So public space is owned by the public and open to the public. So in practical terms, that generally means it's outdoors, and it generally means that it is managed by a government agency. In the United States, it's basically the place where our constitutional rights are most protected because it's where you can have freedom of assembly uh, and freedom of expression. So it's a really, really important concept in democracy. Distinct, I should say, from this odd hybrid that exists in many cities, but especially in New York, called privately owned public space, which is in effect the product of a negotiation between developers and the government saying, okay, we're going to make some space available. We actually own it, but the public can access it. And it's a certain kind of and size of public space with some rules governing what the developers can do. But the important distinction here is that it's often the developers or the landlords who manage it and therefore who set the rules. And I think this question of what the rules are for behavior in public space, especially now in a time of protest and everything being contested, I think that is a really important aspect of it. Because in real public space, the rules are that anything you can do that's legal is is allowable. Whereas in privately owned public space developers can say, no, you can't, you can't do this, you can't do that. I want to get back to this, but even before we do so, does size matter? I mean, could it be a teeny tiny little strip of land and be just as kind of meaningfully public as, say, Times Square? Yes, absolutely. I don't think, it's not that size matters, uh, because it's not that any one space is public. Basically, public space is anything that stitches together private properties. So in a city like New York, you know, public space is the streets, pedestrian plazas, parks, uh, waterfront. You know, they, they come in all different kinds of flavors, and they're often connective tissue rather than a location. One thing that's distinctive about New York is that it doesn't have a clearly understood central public space where people congregate um, just because of the way it's laid out. So it doesn't have a Tahrir Square, a Tiananmen Square, uh, you know, a, a big central 
area that people naturally converge. Right. We have Times Square, but but we go through great lengths to avoid it. Right. And and then there's, you know, parks and there are open spaces. Um, but um, when you look at the history of how people have used it, what's considered the center, central congregating point has really evolved and changed and moved over the history of the city. And so let, let's now get back to, to this super important notion of, of just who gets to dictate. And I don't mean just from a legal perspective. I also mean from a kind of a, a mores perspective. Uh, who gets to dictate how we behave in these public spaces, especially now when, sadly, uh, you know, things that should be rudimentary and elementary, like wearing a mask in a time of a plague, uh, somehow become weirdly politicized and uh, pro- problematized, as they say in academia. So so who who should... How, how should behavior in public space be governed? Well, so public space is always contested because it's public. So um, it becomes the site where lots of different agendas and groups of people and individuals come into contact. And it becomes a kind of place of competition and coexistence and negotiation. And to me, those three things are really the characteristic thing of living in a dense city which is where this concept applies most dramatically. And it's not just New York, but really anywhere. So the whole point of a public space is that you can have, almost by definition, you have encounters that you don't choose. So you run into people who may or may not be your friends, may or may not share any of your opinions, your outlooks on life. And you have to negotiate that coexistence. And you do it on a daily, minute-by-minute basis. We do it if we live in a in a city, we do it almost without thinking. So whether you uh, walk down um, one side of the sidewalk when you're walking quickly or the other, uh, how you cross the street, whether you feel it's um, an intrusion or not to have somebody come up and, and sell you something or, or try to convince you of a political point of view, uh, whether um, you want to stop and listen to a street musician or to somebody preaching the end of the world. All of these things are activities that happen. And residents of cities just get used to kind of like to navigating through all of this kind of whirl of um, individual behavior. And the rules become loose. It doesn't mean to say that there aren't any. Obviously, in a city park, for instance, the parks department has the right to set some rules about how loud music can be, what kinds of sports you can play, and, and so on. But really, it's as in its in its role as a government agency. So I would say that um, it's kind of like, you know, the Constitution. Anything goes in public space unless it is explicitly forbidden. Let me ask you one, one last question. So you and I both had the good fortune of being born in the time of BS, meaning before screens. Uh, we grew up in a time where public spaces were often, uh, you know, paramount in, in our entertainment uh, well-being and, and sense of place and also of ourselves. And and now I, I see from my own children, maybe you see it uh, with yours, that this is kind of a contested notion. More and more of us retreat more and more into ourselves. Do you think the nature of public spaces is changing anything from their importance in our lives to the way that they're designed now that we're all carrying powerful computers in our pockets? Yeah, I might have given you a slightly different answer even six months ago, but I think what we've seen is the importance of them, the degree to which people crave being in them and being together. I mean, we've, you know, in the age of social distancing, um, those rules have changed, but people still want to be in those places. 
the arguments over whether or not to open streets to pedestrians and close them to cars to allow for people to do that. The protests are basically battles over how to use public space and, and where and what is allowable. And I think that they are just as, if not even more valuable and essential than ever. And one of the reasons for that is that public space is actually complicated. It's complicated because of how they're used. And they're often complicated technologically. If you just think of a street, you know, the different kinds of uses, whether it's somebody wheeling a stroller or jogging or uh, operating a wheelchair or driving a car or a bike or a moped or, you know, all of these or just, you know, window shopping or, or just sitting on a bench. All of these different activities have to coexist. These different rhythms of life have to coexist in just what is a, a sensibly strip of asphalt. And so those things have to be engineered. You know, they have to be engineered with curb cuts and crosswalks and lights. And don't forget that a street is also a conduit for all kinds of technology below ground. So it's really three-dimensional, not just one-dimensional. And if you expand that to all different kinds of public space and just think about all of the different uses that, say, uh, you know, a park plays, um, including in these last days as, you know, temporary makeshift hospital grounds, we put a lot of pressure and make lots of demands on public space. And I don't see how really any of that can be supplanted by sort of the online commons. It's a completely different thing. That physicality is really its essence and it's important to the way we live, um, it, you know, especially in cities. All right. So one last, last, last question. Yeah. Uh, let's assume that the next mayor, uh, whoever he or she may be, yep. uh, did something very wise and tapped you as New York City's first public spaces czar and gave you sort of an unlimited amount of money to say, like, design this a wise one according to your understanding of, of how a public space ought to feel and be in, in this particular moment in time. What, what are some of the things that you think uh, you would prioritize that we may not even have right now? Well, um, since I've got unlimited amounts of money, I think step, step number one would be to fully fund and really renovate parks everywhere. They are crucial. They need to be close by. They need to be beautiful and welcoming. They need to offer shade. So replanting a lot of trees. And they need to really be accessible to people in every neighborhood within a few minutes walk. So we have a lot of parkland in New York City, which is you know what I focus on. But some of it is really below par. So that would be step number one, really ramp up the quality and extent of the parks we have. The second would be to really reconceive streets, the, the street as the main kind of connective tissue of the city. Because I think what we have is we're trying to jury rig a system for a set of uses that are kind of incompatible. Um, so you're you're just trying to like, plug holes and, and and fix it up. But the reality is that, as I, as I mentioned before, there are so many different kinds of uses. And the street we have is basically organized around trying to move cars from one place to another as quickly and smoothly as possible. That may seem uh, contradictory when you're sitting in traffic in Midtown moving slower than somebody hobbling by, but that's a byproduct of that kind of design. And so I think we really need to have a long-term plan for how streets can be re-engineered for all different kinds of uses, one of them being 
to adapt the city to climate change because the kinds of surfaces, the kinds of conduits for water, for instance, that we have, the way you know water runs into storm drains and these impermeable surfaces are really counterproductive from a climate point of view. So we could actually take this huge amount of public real estate there is and re-engineer it to be able to absorb floodwaters, just to give you one example. And then the other is just to make sure that it is really equitably accessible to people all across the city, no matter what racial group or ethnic group you are, and especially what kind of you know level of physical ability you have. We have enormous barriers to people with disabilities all over the city. And that it should be a real moral imperative about how we organize the city. Just not being able to get around smoothly if you are physically impaired is a real, it's a ding, you know, it should be something that we do not rest easy with. And so that I would really focus on. And another is, you know, just how we change things like, uh, you know, um, curbside use. Um, you know, do we really need to devote all that space to parking? How do we um, accommodate all the deliveries that are happening now? So uh, this incredibly complex mix of uses requires a long-term plan for how to rethink how they work. Well, Justin, I hope the next mayor of New York City is studying Dafiomi with us and is listening right now. And thank you so much for being our guest. Thanks very much. This has been Take One, a production of Tablet Magazine. If you enjoy this show, please go and rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Each week, we'll be releasing new episodes, Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Dafiomi. I'm your host, Leah Liebowitz. Our producer is Josh Cross, and our editor is Paul Ruest. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash takeone or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. I hope we've made your day a little bit more Talmudic, and we'll see you again soon.